In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a very exciting episode for you. We are going to be talking about infrastructure, uh, some of the infrastructure plans that have been proposed by the Biden administration, and the recent bipartisan deal that was proposed by a group of Republicans and Democrats. So, uh, I mean, shockingly, it's a lot better than the Biden administration's original plan. Mm. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm sure you as a progressive... Definitely believe that. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to talk about the New York mayoral race and uh, the ranked choice voting system there. And then we're going to end today by talking about a bombshell story coming out of the New York Times about how apparently Tucker Carlson was the primary source for a lot of the hot gossip that came out of the Trump administration about how fucked up everything was. Which is going to be a very interesting discussion and a very interesting story. So I, I'm excited for today's episode, bro. Yeah, me too, as I am pretty much every week. Um, and if you're excited about our episode every week, then you probably want to support us. So you can head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theperspectrum. And you can throw us a couple bucks, get access to exclusive patron content, and help support the show. Yep. All right. So, Michael, let's uh, let's start this evening by talking about the COVID numbers. So, what what are those COVID what, numbers? What, at what this a point? shock! <laughs> uh, so, worldwide at this point, 183 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 180 million last week. So that's about three million new cases in a week, which is actually a million more new cases um, than there were uh, from the week before. So, so the week before we had about 2 million case increase and this week it was 3 million. Um, in total at this point, 3.96 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 3.90 million last week, which is about 60,000 um, new deaths, which is about the same, uh, same volume of new deaths that we saw from the week before. So far in the world, 40 doses of the vaccines have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 36 doses per 100 last week, which is a pretty good increase, pretty consistent with um, the level we've seen for the past couple of weeks. In the U.S. at this point, 34.54 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 34.44 million last week. So that's about 100,000 new cases, which is actually much higher than it was than the new case volume from the prior week, as we've seen daily new cases uh, uptick in slightly in the last week. Um, so far, 620,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 618,000 people last week. So that's about 2,000 new deaths in a week, which is about the same volume of, of new deaths that we saw from the prior week. Um, according to the New York Times uh, tracker that we use to monitor uh, the vaccination rate as a percent of population we actually somehow backslid this week in the u.s so 
Last week, 55% of the population had received one dose. And this week, apparently, we're down to 54%. Um, so that might be a data thing. I don't know. But at the very least, we can say that we've made very little, if any, progress on initial mm -hmm. doses um, in the last week. And so far, 46% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is up from 45% of the population last week. So just a 1% increase in the fully vaccinated population. So we're in a stalemate. <laughs> we're, just, was, we're just stuck. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, so good news, so bad news. Yeah, just news. Just you news. Know? Yeah. Just news at this point. We're very, I mean, we're very stuck where we, where we pretty much have been. And that's a problem. I mean, what's nice is that uh, the state where we live, Virginia, just recently hit the 70% threshold mm -hmm. of adults who have been vaccinated, but that's not consistent throughout the nation, and people travel between states, mm -hmm. so we definitely want to lift that up. Um, I know that I say this every single week, but if you have not already gotten the vaccine, get the damn vaccine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, now we're now we're using a very different tact from the the one we've been using for a long time. Pure just peer pressure. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Exactly. If you don't hey, do it, do it. It's cool. It's you know? so cool. It'll make you look so cool. Here, bro, man. come over and try some of this sweet vaccine. Do you know how cool you look with <laughs> a needle feel in your so arm? Good. You get all feverish for a day. <laughs> yeah, and then you like don't die, and that's cool. That's cool as heck, bro. <laughs> um. By the way, before we get started with our uh, regularly scheduled program, there, there are two quick things that I need to address. Uh, first off, Michael, thank you so much for picking up the slack last week while I was gone. I, I really appreciated that. I think that y'all did a really good job, some really interesting discussions. Um, it definitely did make me think about uh, my imminent mortality, so thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the more like doom and gloom episodes. But when you talk about climate change for 90 minutes, that's pretty yeah, much the deal. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the second thing is I actually need to make a very quick correction to something that I said in the last episode that I was in. So not last week, but the week before that. Uh, when I was referring to... Um, uh, to Marxism, the, the Marx theory, mm. I referred to slaves as being the landed gentry. Mm. Um, that's that is the opposite. That is the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite. Uh, they would be considered the proletariat. The landed gentry would be the people that owned them. So I just, makes you sense. know, we, we, we care about being accurate on the spectrum. We care about uh, making corrections. If we get something wrong, I got those mixed up. Mm. I apologize for that. So, you know, let's just to set the record straight right there. Cool. That sounds good. And without further ado, let's talk about infrastructure. Let's so, Michael, how's infrastructure going? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so back in April, we did uh, an episode where we talked pretty, uh, pretty um, at length about Biden's proposed infrastructure plan. Um, and uh, at the time, I think we were pretty hopeful. I was definitely very impressed, more impressed by that plan than I was expecting to be. Um, but I wasn't. As, but, you know. <laughs> as, with, um, as politics seems to go, with time comes sadness <laughs> yeah. and rolling back of, of progressive priorities. Yeah. So this is a really weird strategy from mm -hmm. the Biden administration, which... 
I really don't think is going to pay off. And even if it does slightly pay off, it's not going to pay off for the better. So basically it's important to give a little bit of context here. So I just want to emphasize how watered down proposals for, for infrastructure have been during this negotiation process. And I want, start, I want to start out by talking about the projection from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Mm-hmm. So the American Society of Civil Engineers recently released their grade for the infrastructure in the United States, and they rated it as a C minus, which is better than a D plus, which is what it was in 2017, but is still abysmal. And 11 of the 17 categories that they evaluated got a D minus hmm. or, or in the D range at least. So that's bad. Wow. Those and other categories really brought up the average. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, so they estimated that in order to completely repair our infrastructure, We needed to invest, like when everything was added together, we would need to invest approximately $5.9 trillion in order to improve our infrastructure. Biden's initial proposal was $4 trillion. And it was focused on a lot of other stuff as well. Like it was, that $4 trillion was spread way beyond traditional infrastructure. So, yeah. So it was already a watered-down version of the bill. So, there's been even more negotiations between Democrats as to what that bill might look like. So far, Joe Manchin is calling for a $2 trillion um, infrastructure deal, which I just, I don't see Biden spending much time fighting against that because, Mm. you know, every time Joe Manchin holds... the reins exactly. of power. <laughs> exactly. And so then a bipartisan group of um of senators released a plan which was 600 billion dollars. So it is a watered down version of the watered down version of the watered down version. And it notably leaves out important priorities such as investments in childcare and a lot of the climate agenda which i mean if we don't fix the climate then like what's the point of infrastructure like what's the point of infrastructure in the first place we're all gonna fucking die like at this point if we don't do anything about the climate like it won't matter how good our infrastructure is like at best we're all gonna be you know locked in our houses because it's too hot to ever go outside and we'll have to you know walk around in bubbles or some shit or at worst it's just gonna we're just gonna turn into venus so if we don't fix climate there's really no point in doing infrastructure at this point if we don't address climate change well ultimately last week um biden and the democrats and and republicans were working on this bipartisan bill um came out of negotiations and they had settled on a a one trillion dollar version so um, not quite as watered down as the 600 billion, but but not nearly where we started. And the thing about this particular bill is that it does focus on traditional infrastructure. So 
So it does, you know, focus where the American Society of Civil Engineers, you know, says we should focus. It's focused on roads and bridges, public transit, passenger and freight rail, uh, electric vehicle infrastructure, clean drinking water and broadband internet and a couple of other areas. But the thing about this bill is that, you know, when Biden's like standing on the steps of the White House saying, yeah, we have a deal, um, all they've agreed on is the general categories and size of the spending. It's just a framework. They don't have like the, the details are super vague. They don't have almost any specific spending areas, the specific spending of um, that the bill will focus on. And most, perhaps most importantly, they don't yet have agreement on how to fund it. So like even this bipartisan bill, which instead of um, focusing on democratic and progressive priorities, um, you know, trades that trades focusing on that for uh, the input of ten Republicans. Um, even this bill is still has a really long road ahead and could fall apart at any moment based on a whole host of factors. Which and and the ticking time bomb re- to me really seems to be the funding piece because they just can't agree on how to fund this, how to fund um, the, even the one trillion dollar version of this bill. Yeah, and so like the idea that this is a win only makes sense if you're one of the people in um, you know Congress or if you're the president who has emphasized again and again that bipartisanship is a key part of your strategy. Yeah. And, you know, let's also, let's also go back to one thing that Michael brought up, the differences between how to fund this bill. So let's talk about what it is that Democrats and Republicans are disagreeing on here. And this should give you a good uh, look into what the priorities of the Republican Party are, which... If you listen to the show, you probably already know it's to benefit the wealthy um, and the most well-off as much as possible because that's who funds their campaigns. But in case you weren't already convinced of that, so the disagreement is that Democrats say that we should focus on undoing some parts of Donald Trump's tax law, which I'll remind you, after a decade, 80% of all benefits will have gone to the top 1%. And Republicans are saying, raise the gas tax and electric vehicle charging fees. So basically sales taxes. Now, sales taxes are a regressive tax rate. All right. Middle class people end up paying more, a higher percentage of their income on sales tax than the most well off. I mean, it's fairly intuitive because it only takes effect when you spend money. Mm-hmm. So they want to fund it by raising taxes on the middle class. Like yeah. that's what Republicans want to do. Yeah. They want to raise taxes on the middle class. And, and I just feel like the, the, the throwing in the increasing the amount of money it takes for electronic charging stations. I know that's just punitive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like the asshole that buys a Hummer so we can, run around so he can drive around being like fuck the environment yeah exactly which is not cool anymore to do yeah (laughs) (laughs) so 
I mean, that, so that's, that's one important aspect of this, of the disagreement. Uh, another, another important thing that I would like to point out is let's look at who the Republicans are actually representing in terms of public opinion. So about, about two weeks ago, uh, Monmouth actually released a poll on Biden's infrastructure deal. And, you know, you might think, well, it's, it's one of those deals that's uh, fairly partisan, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, only Democrats are supporting it at this point. So, you know, maybe it'll be like, it'll probably be a, a, a little bit of additional support. Like maybe it's a majority, but maybe it's only a slight majority, like maybe 51, 52%. No, 68% of people support it. Yeah. 68% of Americans support it. Only 29% of Americans oppose it. 29%. That is who Republicans are representing in this. 29% of people that oppose it. And that's the we, thing. It makes sense. It's a, it's like not yeah. that hardcore of a bill that focuses on things that people really want. Like, you know, all the infrastructure stuff that we've mentioned that will be less funded, but at least somewhat addressed in this $1 trillion version. But also things like jobs, green energy, education, uh, you know, uh, bringing our workforce force into the 21st century in terms of their, their training and education, like all of these like human infrastructure components that are really, really necessary to bring the U S economy to make the U S economy just keep up with the rest of the world over the next 10 or 20 years, much less like continue to be a leading power. Exactly. So let's shift gears and talk about the strategy here because you know, you, you might think based on what we've been saying that this means that the Biden administration has completely given up on the uh, $4 trillion deal. Apparently not. Yeah, <laughs> apparently not. And they have but, set up a gambit instead. <laughs> but it's a really weird one. Yeah. Which makes no fucking sense to me. So basically, uh, Biden comes out and he basically says that if he does not get the... The, the partisan deal on his desk that there will be no bipartisan deal, which basically implies that he's going to veto it. Right. Yeah. Which when I first heard that, I was like, wow. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm starting, I'm starting to see a tiny fraction of a backbone. And you know, I, I was all set this week to come on the pod and be like, damn, he, he's really bringing it. And then Republicans bitched and whined and moaned and he immediately backtracked and was like, Oh no, no, no that, 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 that's not what I meant. That's definitely not what I meant. Yeah. So, so let's pause and, and talk about like what the other bill is. So, so there's two bills. One is this $1 trillion bill focused on traditional infrastructure that will go through the normal legislative process and will require 60 votes in the Senate in order to pass, which is, you know, the big, the big um, bottleneck of, of all of our legislation yeah, right the now. filibuster. The filibuster, exactly. Um, the other bill is a quote-unquote spending bill, which attempts to, at least reportedly, we haven't seen this bill yet because it hasn't been put out yet, but but reports to um, try to execute on the Biden administration's other economic priorities, many of which were in his initial um, infrastructure proposal, focused on a lot of the economic revitalization um, uh, components of his initial proposal and, and some of his other like build back better plans. So this 
bill uh, is estimated is like currently being shaped and it's estimated to be anywhere between two and six trillion. Um, and it, it appears that the gambit that they're that not only Biden, but also like Nancy Pelosi in the House is trying to set up is to leverage the bipartisan infrastructure bill in order to keep not only uh, in basically in order to make sure that moderate Democrats will stick to voting for the partisan um, the partisan spending bill, which they can pass with just 50 votes under the reconciliation process. So basically this whole strategy is designed to point at Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and say, vote for this spending bill to go under reconciliation or we're taking the ball and going home. We're not doing infrastructure either. And so so basically what the House is doing and what Nancy Pelosi in the House is doing is requiring that the infrastructure or that the that the spending bill pass through reconciliation, both the House and the Senate, before the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill, will be brought to a vote on the floor of the House. And so really they're just, you know, focusing on Joe Manchin and and effectively saying that um if yeah, if they don't pass the spending bill, then they won't pass the infrastructure bill, which is something that like not only Republicans, not only Democrats, but also Republicans want to do. Um, and also, um, you know, is like, is like, it would be, it would be great if the Democrats could pass one significant piece of legislation <laughs> during yeah. this session before, before the, before the upcoming midterm elections. So, yeah. see, here's, here's my issue with that. First off, it feels like Biden already kind of, Screwed the gave brooch. away the farm yeah. on that one, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and number two, I really do not think Nancy Pelosi is going to follow through with that threat. I just yeah. don't see it happening. Mm. I feel like what they're trying to do, and and, and I feel like it's going to completely backfire because I feel like what's going to happen is that moderate Democrats like Manchin and Cinema are basically going to use this as a like as an as a get out of jail free exactly yeah like they're gonna be like what are you talking about we support infrastructure we we voted for the bipartisan infrastructure yeah like what what are you talking we're we're not standing in the way of infrastructure so this this two-pronged approach just i mean it's it's obscure yeah and it's it's about like you're trying to get everything done that could very easily get done in just one bill just do reconciliation (laughs) <laughs> and it feels like the only reason why you would be doing this strategy is because you know you're not going to get that better bill passed. You know you're not going to get that partisan bill passed. So this is supposed to be, number one, an out for you. So mm. at the end of it, you can say, well, at least we still got something done. And number two, um, it can be a bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. So I just, like, I'm willing to acknowledge if I'm wrong about this. In fact, I really hope I'm wrong about this. Sure. Like, if the strategy does, like, if Manchin values the bipartisan bill enough to vote for the partisan bill, then this will be an excellent strategy. Mm -hmm. Like, but I just don't think he does. Yeah. I just 
I just don't, I, I feel like you're, you're negotiating, you're negotiating a deal with someone that doesn't value uh, government aid to begin with. Mm-hmm. So why would like, why would he vote for both of them? Yeah. Yeah. And my, so my big worry, even if, even if we, even if we think that, you know, Pelosi and Biden will stick to this plan, even if Manchin votes for both of them and like caves to this pressure, my big worry is actually about the Republicans that are currently supporting the bipartisan bill, because I could like, cause I mean, think about what they're doing. The the Democrats in the House are basically saying, hey, guys, we're doing some tricky shit over here. <laughs> you know, like like yeah. they've, they've made their strategy known, which like makes sense. I don't know how you'd keep it a secret anyway. But but the thing is, like the big risk to me is if the 10 if even one of the 10 Republicans that are supporting this bipartisan bill goes bites the bullet and says, you know what, this spending bill is. So is is I'm so against the spending bill that I'm willing to give up infrastructure. And yeah. if even one of them bites that bullet, both of them are dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, historically, depending on the um, the ethical uh, virtue of Senate Republicans has gone very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, like the. It, that in combination with Biden's like quote unquote threat to veto is like really pissing off um, Republicans. Like for example, which he immediately backtracked on. Yeah, but even so, like they they like are putting they're saying like they're really really pissed uh, that he yeah. would like that he would cast out on the bipartisan deal. Um, re- so Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who's one of those one of the ten Republicans um, going to su- that's planning to support this bill, said quote. Uh, we got a very good infrastructure bill that's president endorsed and bipartisan, which can pass and is paid for. I cannot believe that they're holding it hostage for their political agenda. So, like, not only are you giving, are you giving the, the like, not only the Republicans have an out, or the Democrats have an out, saying like, well, we tried to do infrastructure, but we couldn't, or, or, um, but also the Republicans have a way to say, well, we tried to do infrastructure, but the tricky dicky Democrats, yeah. um. It's such a Weasley argument, though. Like, oh yeah, their for their political agenda. Well, their political agenda is more infrastructure. Yeah, better infrastructure than what is in this bill. So basically, you're saying they're holding infrastructure hostage in exchange for better infrastructure. Better infrastructure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my so the my big takeaway from this, aside from just like the very interesting but kind of worrisome like political maneuvering is going on is that we are being held hostage as we've said on the show many times by our commitment to bipartisanship. The fact that Joe Biden and Joe Manchin have the same problem, which is that they are, they've, they've staked out their position in politics as being the people that can get bipartisan stuff done. All that does is give power to um, the Republicans who have shown that they are not interested in bipartisan legislation on a lot of this stuff. So it basically just means that 
all the Republicans have to do is is say, no, I'm taking my ball and going home, and the Democrats are screwed. Yeah. And, you know, even though we've seen this is not, like, working, Biden is still trying to push this this position, which actively undermines their ability to negotiate. So he was in he was in Wisconsin and he was talking about the the infrastructure bill. And he and he says after months of careful negotiation, of listening, compromising together and in good faith moving together with ups and downs and some blips, a bipartisan group of senators got together and they forged an agreement to move forward on key priorities of my American jobs plan. This is a generational investment a generational investment to modernize our infrastructure, creating millions of good-paying jobs and positions America to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. And it's like, you're talking about your old bill. You're pretending that bipartisanship has delivered your political priorities, but bipartisanship has destroyed your political priorities. Yeah. If I were the Biden administration, then... I would basically be like, look, Republicans, we, we, we offered them an olive branch and they rejected it. Fuck them. All right. So what I would do is I'd basically I'd go to Joe Manchin and be like, hey, man, look. You're going to support this legislation. And I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to make sure that that piece of legislation includes extra aid for West Virginia because God knows West Virginia needs it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to take care of your state in this negotiation process. All right. And I will do everything I can to make sure that you get reelected. I will fight any potential primary challenger against you. Hmm. All right. <laughs> I'll spend the, you know, the months leading up to your election, just campaigning in West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but if you don't support it, then I am willing to do everything I can to fuck your career. All right. I will make sure that you do not win re-election. And honestly, you might hear that and say, well, hold on, Nathan. He's in West Virginia. So you're basically just saying that you're okay with his seat getting, ta- getting taken by a Republican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am okay with that. Mm. Look, he's in West Virginia. It's not a reliable state to begin with. It's not sure. a swing state to begin with. He's an enigma, all right? Yeah. A, a, a Democrat from a state that red is a complete enigma to begin with. It's yeah. not a reliable seat. It's not a reliable state. So ideally, in the next election cycle, there are going to be a lot of other Republican seats in much more purple and sometimes even more blue states that are going to be up for re-election, that are going to be much safer bets than West Virginia. That's a really interesting point. It's like, so, yeah, you like can't bet your future strategies on this current seat. So you might as well go all in on it now because yeah. by con- it's almost like it's almost like poker. By conserving your chips, you know, now you're just trying to hold out for something that is going to be a problem later. Yeah. And so you might as well just try to get the most out of it right now. Interesting. So I would threaten the shit out of him. Like I I would say, look, I will take care of you if you vote for this bill. I will make sure that we include things that are your priorities. But if you don't, I will go to West Virginia and say, hey, you know how your roads are still shit? Yeah. That's his problem. Mm -hmm. That's That's his fault. 
He refused to support this legislation. That is Joe Manchin's fault. And I would support a primary challenger against him. And yes, that primary challenger would probably get defeated. And you know what? Fine. Mm. I would be perfectly okay with that. And Richard Ojeda would be like, yeehaw, I'm in again. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. I will answer your question with a question. Hmm. And my question for you is, who let the dogs out? Who? Hmm. Who? 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 Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 <laughs> I yeah, mean. Yeah, that's. So, and, and mean, with that, the, you know, I'll frame that up issue for you to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I, 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 we better find out who, because, uh, there, there are leash laws in my neighborhood, mm. you know? Yeah. So, so who, someone, who, who, whoever let the dogs out is really in for it. Yeah. <laughs> someone's getting a fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're not making the world a better place, mm. but tips for good. That's well, we another reason that we, we can make the world. See, a that's place. the real reason to, to do tips for good. Excellent that's the real point. reason. Yeah. So Nathan, <laughs> what is our tip for good this week? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is kind of two pronged. First off, it's about self-care as an activist. So Michael and I consider ourselves political activists. You know, we, we try to do what we can for our communities. We try to do what we can in terms of our political activism. We try to uh, keep abreast of uh, politics and um, keep, you know, update our knowledge about current movements. But sometimes that can be a lot. Sometimes activists really need to exercise self-care. And I, the, the thing that inspired this was I was reading this book. Uh, I've been reading um, Understanding Power by Noam Chomsky recently. And one of the things that he says, he talks about in it, is he, he, he makes a comment about his life as an activist where he basically says, it's a good year if I'm able to talk to close, my closest friend twice. Hmm. Like if I can talk to my closest friend twice in one year, that's a good year. And it's because the life of an activist is really busy, really rough, really stressful. Now, I would still argue that it's worth it. And I, I'm, I'm definitely not putting myself on the same level as Noam Chomsky in terms of activism. Mm, sure. sure. <laughs> I definitely do not do as much as he does. Um, or, you know, and he doesn't do as much as a lot of other activists do. Sure. You know, and he's, he's even, he's even admitted that he's, you know, he's made that very clear. So my tip for good is as activists practice that self-care and the way that I would recommend that you do that, call a friend of yours, like, you know, Shoot, shoot, shoot a quick text because you're supposed to text before you call, but you know, t- text a close friend of yours that you haven't talked in a while, but you still, you like, you, you've, you're close to, and just be like, hey, let's talk. Let's have a phone call. You know, schedule a time or whatever and talk to them for a while. And maintain those relationships because the road of the activists is tough, but you don't have to necessarily sacrifice all of your sanity in order to walk it. And that's tips for good. 
So for our next segment, we're going to be talking about the uh, New York mayoral primary. And you may wonder, for a podcast uh, explicitly about national news and politics and and, uh, political philosophy, what the heck are we doing talking about a primary race? Not even even the race, uh, the general, but the primary race in New York City. And we're, we're going to talk about it for two main reasons. One, because we like to keep up with Andrew Yang, because um, he was someone that really got our attention during uh, the Democratic primary, um, and so someone we wanna, we're trying to keep tabs on. But two, it's because this was one of the uh, first examples in kind of a, a wave of implementing rank choice voting. And so, you know, New York is New York City is a huge populace. It is, um, you know, a, a huge electoral base, and so it's one of the like largest scale implementations of rank choice voting so far in uh, in the world. Now Maine or in the U.S. Now Maine has rank choice voting as well, um, and Maine has got about a million uh, registered voters, and so this is like. One of the one of the only other like large scale examples that we have so far, um, and so rank choice voting was approved as a ballot measure in 2019, and so and and this is the first time that their board of elections has actually implemented it so far, and so we wanted to talk about like remind people what rank choice voting is, um, why it's valuable, and then some of the some of the challenges which were actually exemplified during this um, during this mayoral primary. Yes, exactly. So let's start out by quickly laying out how the ranked choice voting system works. Because uh, I, I remember the first time that I talked to my dad about this, he had this he had this other idea of how it worked, where it was like people get a certain amount of points and they get to distribute it. That's not how this works. All right, it's not about points. Um, so basically, what happens is in this particular in, in, in the case of the New York primary, you get to rank your top five choices, right? And what they do is they sort of do um, rounds, right? So in the first round, they look at everybody's first choice to see if anybody got uh, over 50%. And if they did, they just win flat out. But if nobody gets over 50%, then they drop the candidate that has the lowest and then the people that had listed that candidate who had just been dropped um, as their number one, it then goes down to their number two and that gets added into the tally. And they keep doing that until somebody has uh, a, uh, somebody has over 50%, which I would say that's a damn appealing system because what's yeah. nice is that it ruins the potential for spoiler candidates. Exactly. And it actually does. I, I would argue that it helps to fuel progressive change mm-hmm. because one of the arguments that establishment Democrats always make when it comes to presidential elections is, okay, you might want the, uh, the, the leftist candidate, like the green party candidate or whatever. But they have no chance of winning, and if you if you vote for that candidate, you're throwing away your vote. So vote for the so vote for the Democrat or risk having the Republican. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, they're right. 
because yeah. that is how our current system works. Yeah. That is a good argument under our current system. Mm-hmm. So change the system. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's, I want to talk a little bit more about this like spoiler effect. So basically under our current system, which is called a first past the post system, um, if your preferred candidate loses, you might as well have not voted for them. Like it just doesn't make a difference. So, um, um, so the result of that is that you're incentivized to balance two opposing things. One, on the one hand, is your preference for a candidate. The other hand is uh, the popularity, the likelihood that that candidate will succeed. So in something like a primary, um, you are incentivized to pick a candidate like we did, like we did with the Democratic primary in the in the 2020 election. Um, you're like you're incentivized to pick a candidate that is the least offensive to you, that is the most likely to garner other support. So rather than yeah. considering your views as your primary input for uh, who you should vote for, one of your primary inputs is actually like your neighbor's views. It's the other yeah. people around you in your district that end up determining who you should vote for strategically. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and so rank choice voting enables you to pick your preferred candidates without losing or wasting your vote in the case that your preferred candidate is not the most popular candidate. So you can still contribute to the success of a less preferred good candidate rather than having to you know, face this gambit where if you vote for your favorite candidate, it's actually benefiting the person that you hate the most, right? Like if you vote for your favorite candidate and that person actually is just pulling votes away from the, the, the likely winner, then really you're contributing to, you know, the person that you want to lose the most. Yeah. Yeah. Like for example, say you're a progressive voting in the democratic primary, but you, you know, you prefer Elizabeth Warren, but Bernie Sanders was polling in second place. Mm -hmm. All right. So you think, all right, well, I would have preferred Elizabeth Warren, but I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders because he has a better chance of winning Mm -hmm. or say you're more centrist. All right. And you like, for some reason you like Amy Klobuchar you know, to each their own. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine what reason that would be, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But you, you decide I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because he seems to have a better chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I, I personally voted for Bernie Sanders because I thought he was the best candidate. Like, yeah. you know, flat out, but it's very possible. There, there was, there were some times where I was wondering, like if he were to like shrink in the polls and start polling at like 2% and Elizabeth, and it seems to be more of a race between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, yeah. would I then vote for Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. I might, you know? Yeah. Or, or in the case of like a third, a significant third party candidate in like a general yeah. election, you know, you could yeah. think like, what if Bernie, which he would not have done, but what if Bernie like had, had raced as a third party candidate after losing the democratic primary, Exactly. Um, you know, like you would feel really pulled towards that candidate but yeah. you would almost definitely have voted for Joe Biden because the threat of Donald Trump was way worse. Yeah. And look, in the general election, I very might well have voted my first choice for the Green Party candidate um, mm-hmm. if we had ranked choice voting. Yeah. Um, 
I purposely like we did do a segment in which we laid out the the libertarian candidate and the uh, mm-hmm. Green Party candidate, but I kind of purposely tried not to look too far into them because I didn't want to be tempted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Another potential benefit of ranked choice voting is that it um, it makes it tough for someone to get elected in a broad field of candidates when they don't have, um, you know, when they only have fringe political support. Yeah. So in the case yeah. of like, in the case of like this Democratic primary in New York, there are 13 candidates in the field. So that means that like, Divided evenly, it's like seven point seven percent each. Yeah, which means like to be the front runner, you don't have to get that that amount of like a significant amount of of the vote unless you have like a system where you have to get a majority in order to win. But like, yeah. so so basically, you can in a broad field, you can have a a widely unpopular opinion opinion that is popular with a a large subset, and potentially win. Um, yeah. And so this kind of gets rid of, at least theoretically, the the potential for that to happen or the li- or lowers the likelihood that that would happen. Yeah. And also, maybe this is maybe this is a little bit too much speculation uh, or maybe this is just based too much on my own ex- on my own experience, my own sort of thought pattern. But I think it would all it also indirectly causes conversations to be more about policy mm than the people yeah because i mean i mean let's think about the democratic primary election i feel like if there was ranked choice voting elizabeth warren and bernie sanders probably would have been a lot more like friendly to each other a lot more um focused on lifting uplifting each other Mm -hmm. because look if people if if you're looking at things based on policy if your first choice is Bernie, your second choice should be Elizabeth Warren. And if your first choice is Elizabeth Warren, your second choice should be Bernie. Mm -hmm. If we're just looking at policy, but because it was like, because they were direct competitors with each other in sort of the same swath of voters, it meant that they had to be a little bit more vile towards each other. Yeah. You know, they had to, and I didn't, I don't think that was productive for progressivism. I thought yeah. that the spout between the two of them during that, especially with the whole, uh, the whole like accusations of uh, him making sexist comments or supposed sexist comments, that was not good for progressivism. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I mean, even just anecdotally, also, um, you know, so much of the Democratic primary was focused on, yeah, we want these other people, but can they win? Yeah. And you know. Yeah. At least some degree that could be miti- that could be mitigated by ranked choice voting. Yeah. And one of those candidates was Andrew Yang. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and, and uh <laughs> and he suffered a similar fate. <laughs> Although Andy, you, reverse you, you screwed trajectory. the pooch on this one. Yeah, you really screwed the pooch on this, screwed screwed pooch on this one. one, bro. Yeah. Um look, he was my third choice in the presidential election like he would have been my third choice and there were several times in which i was thinking basically if he ran for president then he would probably he would very likely be at least my first or second choice uh, depending on who else was running um but there are some things that he said that i think really fucked himself and 
look, I'm not going to say that this colors every single thing he's ever said. Sure. Like, I'm not going to say that this, you know, that this means that all of the good activism that he did on UBI is now just gone. No. Like, I, I still think that we do need to look at him as a whole person and people are flawed. People are not perfect. But we also need to be honest in our criticisms, especially when it's somebody that we like. Yeah. And there are two specific statements that he made that I just found completely disgusting. So one of them was on Israel-Palestine. So he had previously made some comments in which he was against the BDS movement. Now, the BDS movement is basically, uh, it's um, boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. So the idea is in order to protest the uh in order to protest what Israel has been doing to Palestine, we boycott them. All right. So one of the arguments uh, that proponents of BDS often make is that this is peaceful protest. All right. You're always saying we can't do violent protest. Violent protest destroys your cause. So now we're going to do a peaceful protest. So he spoke out against this as a form of protest. Now, his argument was basically that there are some really anti-Semitic people that believe in BDS, which is, is true enough, but, I mean, Hitler was a vegetarian. You know, does that mean that all vegetarians are anti-Semitic? I mean, it, it, hey, I don't, it's guilty really by association. To me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know. It's, 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 guilty by, it's the guilty by association fallacy. It's not actually talking about the substance of what the person's actually saying. Hmm. And then he doubled down later, and this is the part that really got under my skin. Uh, he said, quote, I'm standing with the people of Israel who are coming under bombardment attacks and condemn the Hamas terrorists. The people of NYC will always stand with our brothers and sisters in Israel who face down terrorism and persevere. Now, if he had said that and then added some more things, I would have been completely OK with this. Yeah. Yeah. So we we actually in our in our breakdown of Israel, Palestine, Palestine, we did condemn Hamas as terrorists because they are, they were yeah. targeting civilians. Very clearly. Yeah. Like full stop. Hamas is a group of terrorists. Also Israel, when they, when the Israeli government is targeting civilians with their bombardment, which at the time the statement was made, the death toll had already risen up to 65, including 16 children. That is also terrorism. Because you are targeting civilians for a political reason. So the fact that that was not addressed just disgusted me. Mm. But again, let's, let's, let's also take a step back and understand that New York doesn't really have much, like the mayor of New York does not have much control over foreign policy. Sure. So, you know, not that important what the mayor of New York thinks about Israel and Palestine. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe that's something that might make me not like him in a presidential election. But, you know, it, for New York, it probably doesn't matter. So then he said something else about the homeless population in New York, specifically people with um, mental disabilities. Uh, so he said, quote, we need to get them the care that they need. But that will also supercharge our economic recovery because we see all of these mentally ill people on the streets and subways. And you know who else sees them? Tourists. And they don't come back 
they tell their friends, don't go to New York City. And this was actually after he had already said, quote, yes, mentally ill people have rights, but side note, uh, anytime you say mentally ill people have rights, the next the next word should not be but. I, I was thinking the exact same thing when I read this quote. I was like, it just in my head, it was like anything before the but doesn't count. <laughs> and it was just like, no, full stop. Mentally ill people have rights. Anyways, uh, so quote, mentally ill people have rights, but you know who else has rights? We do. The people and families of the city. We have the right to walk the street and not to fear for our safety because a mentally ill person is going to lash out at us. So here's why I have a problem with this. Now, you, you might hear that and think, oh, Nathan, are you just being politically correct? Like he's still supporting giving men, you know, people with mental illnesses the care that they need. Like, why are you uh, like, why, why are you pissed off at this? Well, here's the thing. Rhetoric often does translate into policy. And this type of rhetoric is the type of rhetoric that has often been that has historically been used against mentally ill people in which the priority of the policy is not to take care of the mentally ill person, but it is to keep them away from society, yes. to protect society from them. Yeah. And that often leads to basically just locking them up in some hospital and throwing away the key. Care be damned. Yeah. So that's why I have a problem with this. Yeah. All right. I, I totally agree. Like I like balancing rights is a really important task, right? Like, yeah. Balancing our interests is like the fundamental project of government and, and our judicial system. Like that's the whole goal is to balance these things. There is no counterbalance between someone in desperate need of help, not getting the aid they need, homeless on the street due to a mental illness. There's no counterbalance between that and feelings of insecurity when you're walking around. Like, to be fair, like, if someone was assaulted, like, there there's there are other things, like, you know, that that's a different set of things. But yeah. what Yang said was that he was trying to balance care against, and, and, and you know, help for homeless people against feeling happy when you walk on the street. Yeah. And it's like, and look, it's just, like, both are important. One has to be the priority, and it happened to be the one that was before the butt. Yeah. And look, I, to an extent, understand what brings somebody to that conclusion. Sure. Like when I was doing my internship in DC, uh, one day when I was walking to, uh, to the building, um, there was this homeless man without a shirt who was walking around. And I, I assumed that he had some type of mental illness because he just randomly walked up to me like, it seemed like he was talking to himself and he just randomly walked up to me, stuck his middle finger in my face and shouted, fuck you, fuck you. Yeah. And look, That's super that unpleasant. was, yeah, it was unpleasant. You know, it was, it was kind of scary. But the thing is, the problem is not that he, like, the biggest problem is not that he did that. It's that someone like him was put in a situation in which he is not being taken care of. Mm. So my concern with this statement by Andrew Yang is the fact that he is prioritizing, basically, he, he is prioritizing the whole 
protects the people from having to see that or deal with that over addressing the root of the actual problem. Yeah. And that's really disappointing coming from Andrew Yang because he's traditionally in his policies, very root cause focused. He's very focused on like, well, if people don't have money, let's give them some money, you know, like, um, and, and so it's, it's kind of a shame to hear that coming from him as well. Um, so it, those, those missteps along with a bunch of other kind of, um, issues with, uh, his campaign and his approach led him to like, fall pretty far behind in the polls. So a few a few other things happened. Like he got a lot of criticism for leaving New York City during the pandemic, um, during like the height of the pandemic. And on the when I when I first was looking at this, I was like, well, I mean, I I know multiple people who fled the city during the pandemic. It was a terrible place to be. There was, you know, people in New York, they don't cook, they don't they just order food, like they all they're they're stuck in these tiny little apartments like it's a miserable place to be during the pandemic i would i totally understand why one would would try to leave to me the big problem was the way he handled it when he was getting that criticism um that just came across as super out of touch so he said quote can you imagine trying to have two kids on virtual school in a two-bedroom apartment and then trying to do work yourself Yes. 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 <laughs> Millions of people, of people <laughs> yeah, went through that exact experience. Like, and and yeah. the thing is, like those, that type of out of touchness with being a New Yorker, with like ha- yeah. with like the New York experience is, I think, a huge part of what undermined him. He also, like, misnamed. He talked about like taking the F train to the or the A train to the Bronx, and like, yeah, it doesn't go there. So like. That, I mean, you know, not a big deal, but the kind of thing that discredits him as a good yeah. representative um, yeah. of New York. He also apparently hasn't voted in a New York mayoral election despite, you know, living in the city. He didn't vote in a mayoral election between 2001 and 2017. So, like, all of these things kind of came out that that certainly relative yeah. to the other, like, born and bred New York civil servants on on the ballot made him look kind of like you know just a an outsider and and not the outsider that gets it the way he came across during the presidential campaign the outsider that is out of touch yeah i don't know i feel like a lot of those are kind of just like like meaningless smears i I mean i understand i understand that like i understand that when people see that that can cause them to have negative reactions yeah I just think that there was probably more emphasis because he is, you know, he is more of an outsider candidate. Yeah. But ultimately I do think that he completely screwed the pooch on this. I think that, uh, the biggest problem was like, you know, again, his, his statements about homelessness, his statements about Israel, Palestine, he very quickly turned a lot of the online left against him with that Israel, Palestine comment. Yeah. And so he went from, polling at 28% of likely Democratic voters saying they'd vote for him as their first choice in January, uh, dropped down to 13% um, in Ouch. May. Yeah, yeah. In a 13-person thir- field, like, that's still not terrible, but it's not nearly what you need. And then, ultimately, in, in the initial tabulation of first choice um, in-person votes, he received 12% of the vote, where 
the lead, the front runner, Eric Adams, who's the former um, Brooklyn Borough president and a former police captain, he got 31%. Um, Maya Wiley, who's a civil rights lawyer, got 22%. And former tan- sanitation commissioner, Catherine Garcia, received 19%. Um, now, that was just the first choice initial tally. Um, but as far as like, but as far as showing that he uh, was was not in it to win it at the end there, um, yeah. it was pretty clear. And so he was actually the first candidate to drop out, despite a number of others being further in the tail. He dropped out after the initial tabulation of first choice results. That's gotta hurt. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, especially you know, yeah. a, a two failed co- political campaigns, especially losing all the name recognition and clout coming off the presidential election. Like that's a huge pro- reason why he was polling so highly is people just knew who he was and he just lost a ton, a ton of ground. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? I could not be more excited to announce <laughs> our asshat this week. This is a first-time asshat of the week, but former asshat of my life. It's Donald Trump. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. He's come out of hiding. We're in the post-Trump era, and he can yep. finally get yep. get onto our asshat. To be fair, I think, I mean, because of our no-Trump asshat rule, Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene have been asshats, you know, more a often. Um, but as always, he is... He is the asset of our lives. Yeah. Although, to be fair, in this particular instance, this isn't as much him being an asshat as it is <laughs> him saying something so fucking stupid yeah. that we, we couldn't not talk about it. Like we, we thought about potentially doing like a segment maybe at the at the beginning or just having it be a, a throwaway thing or maybe having it a D-bag award, but we just decided, look, let's just make this an asshat segment. You know, let's just have fun laughing at how fucking stupid our former president is. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, Michael, um, you ever heard of a guy named Neil Armstrong? You know, I know. I know that name. It rings a bell. He's the singer, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Louis. Oh, Louis Armstrong. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this is the guy. This is the guy that went to the plant store. <laughs> actually you're you're, you're I'm, not I'm far pretty off. close so, yeah there you go so so donald trump was uh was in a rally recently uh because he's starting rallies again and he was trying to talk about like american exceptionalism and stuff and he he wanted to talk about neil armstrong but he forgot who Neil Armstrong was. <laughs> but he literally couldn't. <laughs> and what he did. <laughs> like, I just I just want to read a very, like, small quotation from this rally, and then we just, we just need to break it up for a sec. So he said, talking about the United States, he said that we, quote, sent a brave man from Ohio to a plant. <laughs> Not planet. <laughs> plant. <laughs> and he, he like he searches around for like 15 or 20 yeah. seconds like you you know who i'm talking to. you you guys yeah. know who i'm talking about right you know who i'm talking about yeah you know that guy. and eventually the crowd yells near armstrong neil armstrong he's like yes exactly <laughs> to a plant yeah to a plant so it seems that he was trying to say planet 
but that's wrong too. Yeah, no, that's really wrong too. <laughs> so he forgot the guy's name. Yeah. Said he went to a plant, meaning to say planet. Yeah. And what he intended to say wasn't even true. Yeah. And then he and then he later he was like and and he landed on the moon and it's like dude so you had the word it's a moon. <laughs> This this guy still says that Joe Biden is demented. I just, I mean, yeah. to be fair, Joe Biden might be, but dude, pot kettle, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, what 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 an asshat. That guy's the worst. I can't. I also, what is he rallying for? Who who is he rallying? This is ridiculous. Well, I, I mean, apparently th- there have been some internal reports that he apparently thinks he's going to be reinstated as president in August. Because of like findings from uh, election audits, which being reinstated as president, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. <laughs> reinstated is not a word that applies to the presidency. You cannot be reinstated. <laughs> God. Anyway. This guy was the most powerful man in the free world for four fucking years. Yeah. God. So hey, Michael, do you miss him? <laughs> you know, you know, I played the video. I was watching it. And I played it out loud. And Brie goes, man, I haven't heard his voice in so long. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to Donnie John Trump for being our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. <laughs> okay, so for our last segment tonight, we are talking about Tucker Carlson. And I think this might be like one of the only times we've talked about Tucker Carlson, not in the context of an asshat, but rather as um, a whole segment all of his own. And so we're talking about some recent news that broke where apparently he has been kind of playing both sides of the political arena, being a primary kind of source for information and leaks out of the Trump campaign. Yeah. So I just would like to, like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm going to toot my own horn. This confirms something that I've been saying about Tucker Carlson all along, which is, like, he is a very smart propagandist. Yes. Now, you might hear a lot of the arguments that he makes and think, that is the stupidest fucking argument I have ever heard in my life. And look, there are a lot of arguments that he makes that are really stupid. Yeah. But the thing is, they appeal to his audience. Exactly. And he has, like, he has the highest rated show, uh, political news show on cable television. Yeah. So he's doing something and it, it, and it's working. Yeah. And his propaganda is really smart. Like, it just, it absolutely is. Even just his tone of voice, the way he speaks to his audience. Yeah. It's so official. It's conversational. Yeah. Like, and, we like to make yeah. fun of his voice, but it, I mean, <laughs> go ahead. he throws in, you know, terms of art and references to make himself sound more official. And when you as an audience member know it, you feel smart. And his whole tone is, of course, you, my audience member, and I know the truth. And it's what I'm revealing to you right now. And it is that all of these, the, you know, the Democrats are evil. The Republicans are, you know, corrupt, except for the ones that are you know, the most Trump loyal and all of those things. But like everything about his propaganda is very, very effective. Yeah. So he's not stupid. And I've been saying that all along. Yeah. Like 
he is not stupid. He is incredibly smart, and we should not underestimate him. And uh, the New York Times, um, an article written by Ben Smith, came out and basically revealed that Tucker Carlson's like genius machine that he has created runs a lot deeper than just like being a good propagandist on Fox News. He like as as Michael said, he's been playing both sides. So as it turns out, according to according to this article, um, he had interviewed uh, 16 different journalists, uh, none of which were from the New York Times specifically because he wasn't trying to put any of his colleagues in an uncomfortable position. But 16 journalists directly said, directly told him that um, he has been one of their primary sources about goings on in the White House throughout the entire Trump presidency. So basically mm -hmm. you, you can like think about a lot of the leaked stories about crazy shit that has happened inside the Trump white house. Yeah. Odds are that might've been leaked by Tucker Carlson. Hmm. Uh, Michelle Wolf, who uh, wrote the famous book fire and fury. Um, he actually specifically thanks Tucker Carlson in, in his mentions in, in, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, quote, in Trump's Washington, Tucker Carlson is a primary super secret source. All right. He said, I know this because I know what he has told me. I can track his exquisite, too good not to be true gossip through unsourced reports and as it often emerges into accepted wisdom. Hmm. So this is the guy that wrote Fire and Fury basically revealing like, yeah, this guy is a source for people, which I assume would also imply that he was a source for Fire and Fury as well, for some of the things they talked about in Fire and Fury. Mm -hmm. So this is... That in and of itself is insane. Yeah. But the part of it that I think is the most telling and is the most like disgusting part for me is not what Tucker Carlson has been doing, but it's been what journalists have been doing in response to Tucker Carlson being a source. You know, as, as we've talked about in the past and as, as Bree uh, talked about when she came on, uh, when Michael's wife Brie came on, uh, talked about when she came on, the primary function of the media should be to be a watchdog of those in power. Yeah. All right. Keep those in power in check. Now I would, I would probably classify Tucker Carlson as definitely being one of those people mm -hmm. that is in power. Like maybe, maybe he's not in the government, but he's definitely a very prominent figure and he should be kept in check. He should be, uh, checked up on. Unfortunately, as it turns out, according to this, a lot of journalists have been basically trading access to this gossip for favorable coverage of Tucker Carlson. So there's one example from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Wall Street reporter uh, Michael Bender, who had written a story about how after the first debate, uh, Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump had a phone call with each other in which Trump was basically like, everyone said I did a good job. And Tucker Carlson was like, I don't know who told you that that was good. It was not good. And this conversation was described in such detail that there's no way that a person who wasn't a part of it was not one of the primary sources. And it, quote, um, casts Mr. Carlson in a flattering light. So again, access for that favorable coverage. Another uh, Washington journalist uh, said, quote, 
if you open yourself up as a resource in to mainstream media reporters, you don't even have to ask them to go soft on you. Mm. So yeah. again, you're trading access for favorable coverage. I mean, that is just so like, to me, that's the worst part of this story. Yeah. Yeah. We've got like great journalists that, you know, even if it's not, even if it's not explicit in their own mind, they're the kind of people that have a, a close, you know, have developed like a close relationship with Tucker Carlson, who's out there spewing bile and just this absolute trash on the airwaves. Yeah. And, you know, any, and, and they're letting bias creep into their coverage of this, of this person in power. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that, that seems like inherently corrupt. Another aspect of the story that I also found insane was apparently there was a case where Carlson used a favorable story of himself in which basically he acted as the unnamed source and then confirmed it as a, like on the record. So, mm -hmm. so basically what happened there was the story that came out that I think we might have even talked about on the pod. And we, I think we actually gave him some credit for this, um, where basically last March, there were some stories about him going to Mar-a-Lago to basically tell Trump, hey, this COVID-19 thing is actually a big threat. Yeah. It's important. You should cover it. And what I thought was hilarious was apparently he was the initial source like off the record source for this story. Hmm. And then later he comes out and says, oh yeah, yeah, that, that actually happened. He, it, later he told it the story on the record in an interview with Joe Hagan from Vanity Fair. Hmm. So it basically sounded like, you know, it gets leaked and then he confirms it. Yeah. Now, I'm not even sure if this, if this is actually how it happened or if this is actually what happened because like, He's the primary source and look at, look at his content. Like since then, hmm. like look at his COVID denial, look at his yeah, like anti-vaccine anti coverage. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the craziest, one of the craziest, um, quotations from this article, uh, comes from, um, reporter Maxwell Tani from the daily beast who says, quote, whenever there's a favorable story about Tucker, some Fox executives assume he had a hand in it. It's mm -hmm. so like even the people at Fox know this shit. Yeah. He is using his position, not only his relationship with the white house, but position as an insider in the news media, um, to bolster his own image, to, to leak favorable stories about himself, negative stories about, you know, the Trump administration or whatever get him, gets him favor, um, you know, to the media, while at the same time, like, using his clout and his willingness to just ruthlessly go after individual reporters who are looking into him to disincentivize people from, from looking into him as well. So there were a number of, of instances called out in the article where he would call out reporters who by name who were, like, looking into, you know, his properties or, or things like that and caused so much backlash that their stories would end up not ever getting published. And so yeah. like he's got, he's basically in this position right now where not only does he have a significant influence and significant, you know, information, 
but also real power. And the combination of the two means that not only is he driving, not only is he, you know, you know, has millions of viewers a night, but he also um, is controlling his own narrative and is controlling like the media around him um, in a way that, you know, is pretty worrying. Like you, you wonder how someone like him can be so horrible and, and yet we only ever really hear from him, you yeah. know, and we hear from him and we hear like from the people that he's attacked who are upset about it. But we like, but you know, you don't hear that much coverage of like, um, you know, like the, the coverage of him, like, like the defamation lawsuit against him got like yeah. very little, very yeah. little attention. Um, and so like, and again, that was, that was when his own defense was, I'm such a horrible source that nobody in their right mind would ever believe me. So I can't possibly have committed defamation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he really is like in this incredibly strong position right now, um, kind of walking this line, controlling his own narrative, controlling the news media narrative around him and around the political goings on. Um, and at the same time, creating this, um, just, just co like developing an immense amount of influence in the political, you know, in, in the populace, um, with his, with his conspiracy theorizing. Yeah. So in case it wasn't already clear based on like previous statements, previous coverage, he's a grifter. Yeah. Well, like, that's certainly true. Yeah. He's he's a grifter. He's a shyster. He's a I'm, and, and what I'm curious about is what happens now. Mm -hmm. Like, do his people turn against him, or do they just like pretend that this is fake news? We've already heard from uh, another Fox News commentator, uh, Mark Levin, who basically did a segment in which he didn't directly mention Carlson by name, but he was talking about Carlson and he was basically saying like, you know, this just demonstrates uh, anybody who would do something like this is uh, disloyal. And I don't know how they sleep at night. Hmm. Like, um, so I, I don't know. I, I, what do you think? Do you, do you think that, do you think that the right turns against him after this? Or do you think that they try to like, he tries to, brush it off, hope it blows over and pretend it's fake news. I think there's not a chance that the right turns against him. Not, not even a slim one. Like really? No, 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 absolutely not. Like this is a story from the New York times. Um, so already a source that's not credited by his viewership. Um, he has 3 million viewers an episode, which means that Fox news has every incentive to keep him on the air. He's not a news show. So there's no, there, like, and Fox news really, really relies heavily on the difference between their talk show hosts and their news shows in order to, to try to sleep at night. Um, like I think so, so they're going to pretend like, that's the thing. They're going to pretend it's fake. And if for some reason, like irrefutable evidence comes out that it's real, they will absolutely spin it. They will like, Tucker Carlson will absolutely be able to spin it to his audience that he is an underground warrior on their side. Like, like leaking, leaking, leaking Trump stuff to the news media is all about like trying to get at the truth and, or trying to make the news media run in circles. Like he, they were his puppets. Yeah. Like the thing is what they, what 
what their, his viewership re, re, admires above all else, we can see this in their support of Trump, is the people that thwart at, yeah. you know, at, 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 as like a primary motivation, that they, all they do is disrupt. Yeah. And, and that's, this is just another example of that. See, I understand that. And then that's, that's definitely very possible, but I, I, I would disagree. I actually, so the one thing in right-wing politics right now that can make the right turn against you is to turn against Trump. <laughs> like that's the only thing that can get people to turn against you. They turned against Liz Cheney. Like they turned against sure. Liz fucking Cheney because she said mean things about Donald Trump. Mm. Like what I think is going to happen is I think that there's a chance that Trump reads this, believes it because he, he's already Trump super reads? paranoid. No way. <laughs> well, he, he hears Has someone about read it. it to him. <laughs> yeah. His, uh, his, you know, his, uh, his, his babysitter reads it for him. Um, and, I think that he believes it. I think Trump believes it because he loves to turn against people. He loves to create drama. Um, I think he turns against Tucker Carlson. He releases a statement soon, basically calling Tucker Carlson a traitor or whatever. And as soon as Trump does that, the right flips on, on Tucker Carlson. And the fact that you already have one prominent right-wing commentator, uh, Levin, talking about this, I think there's going to be more to come. And the second Tucker, the second uh, Trump weighs in on this, if he turns against Tucker Carlson, if, and if he believes this story, then Tucker Carlson's history. I guess we'll see. Yeah, our we'll first see. major disagreed prediction <laughs> on the perspectrum. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll see what happens. You, like I said, you very well might be right. Um, yeah, same will, for you. This is, you uh, know, yeah. But I, I think I think it's a coin toss here. Well, well, I'll we'll bet a beer on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but 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 like uh, but like a good beer. You sure, know? sure, sure. Like not not uh, a PBR. Yeah. Like something on tap. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> PBR is on tap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and with that, we'll end our episode as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight is I went to uh, one of my really good friends' weddings uh, mm. this week. Uh, that's why I uh, that that's why I wasn't on the pod last week. Um, I was the groomsman in my good friend uh, Kyle Chaska's wedding. Who you might he was recognize on the show, that yeah. name because he was on the show. Yeah, yeah, wow. He was the he was the speech language pathologist who uh, came on and talked about uh, how things were in the health field and gave a amazing interview uh he recently got married and i got to be his groomsman and it was it was just such a beautiful wedding um they're they're such an amazing couple i i really loved being there with him um i really loved partying afterwards it was just it was a really it was a really great experience that's awesome dude that sounds really great yeah what about you michael what's what's your highlight mine is a preemptive uh highlight it is that so Bree and I are, are uh, celebrating our wedding anniversary this coming weekend. It was actually this past weekend, but you know we're, we're celebrating a weekend late. Um, and we were originally going to go camping, but we both decided that we were tired and didn't really want to just be out in the heat wave, um, you know, uh, sleeping in a tent. And so we ditched those plans and booked a last minute trip to a beach vacation in Florida for four days. So <laughs> it's uh 
we were able to like actually get not too expensive flights and hotels and everything. So we're going to the beach, just the two of us. It'll be the first time since our honeymoon that we've been um, able to go on a trip like this. So we're, uh, we're really excited. Nice, Michael. Uh, wear sunscreen. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.